Hey, go ahead and turn to Psalm 95. We are all finished with our series through Easter. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing what we call standalone sermons. These are just sermons detached from a series. And then we will get into the book of 1 John for the month of May. And if I was any shorter, I would not be able to like see you in, in standing in front of this communion table. You guys should have thought that was funnier than it is to me. But um, Psalm 95. And I, I said something last week in, our, in the final sermon we, I preached for uh, the book of Esther. I said, worship is the entrance to rest. And I, I wanted to, uh, I, I just wanted to take some time and unpack that a little bit further to us for when we think about rest and our battles with rest and our struggles with rest and our more natural draw to what I would say is relaxation over rest as a way to compensate for the lack of rest. Ronnie, you've just said the word rest 86 times. Um, I'm gonna say it about 86 more times, but uh, we're, we're, gonna see a psalm, we're gonna read through a psalm that really calls us to worship and it teaches us how we are to worship and some of the elements that are contained when we come before the Lord and some of the results that come as the result of us coming before the Lord and humbling ourselves and, and doing what we just did, worshiping him. And it's also going to contrast to us what it looks like when we don't do that, but we actually sort of bend back into some of the idols of our life or some of the things that we think are giving us rest, but they're really not providing us with rest. And for some of us, it can be some wounds from the past or some damages from the past. Uh, for some of us, it can just be um, just carrying some particular burdens that are very unique to our lives. And so we, we struggle in, in those times to, to find that kind of rest that we long for. Um, for some of us, it's, it's really, it's maybe a Maybe a, a matter of sin and rebellion, something that God is calling us out of, but we keep putting up the barrier, we keep hitting the brakes, and we're determined to kind of just follow the path that we want to follow. We're determined to just do what we want to do, even though we know it's not pleasing to the Lord. And what we do is we then find ourselves in sort of a state of perpetual unrest when that, when that happens. Man, I, uh, I experienced so many failed vacations as a kid. Um, somehow, no matter where we went, we'd end up at a motel in the desert. All right. Um, to this to this day, I'm I'm actually still clueless as to why that happened. I mean, sometimes I wonder if my parents ever even planned a vacation. Really, like 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 when the doors were closed, I can hear my dad telling my mom, like, "Here's an idea. Again, let's just drive to wherever we want that would seem like fun, but is already closed for the season." turn around and go back to that motel in the desert with the kids because that's exactly what happened every time we went on vacation. And what's sad is that we were happy with it. All of us as kids, we were stoked because we were kids and we were not smart, right? Of course, I'm not talking about any of the substance kids here in the room, all brilliant-ish, you know? Um, but here's what was interesting, our journey back from the, I mean, this is really Chevy Chase stuff, guys. I got to be honest with you. But our journey back to whatever the place we originally went to, that was closed for the season, inevitably every time. Our journey back to the motel in the desert, it always ended um, with our gas gauge hitting empty, like 20 miles outside of town, right? And my pops, he absolutely loved this. And I think he planned it. Um, He'd start saying things like, shoot, I think we're going to run out of gas, right? And for some reason that triggered 
all of us kids and we just explode into this panic mode. I don't know why. You know, like it's his car, it's his gas, right? Um, but then he'd start making bets with us about whether we were going to make it to the town, to the gas station or not, you know? Great guy, my dad, a model father, you know? Um, making bets with his kids, right? Lost a lot of money in those bets and he would collect, right? What I didn't realize until later in life was that the reason he never panicked was because he knew how much gas he had in reserve when the needle hit the E, right? And so for some of us, for some of you, your, your life resembles a cycle like that. It's a cycle of running on empty where you always end up back in the same place, no matter what you do, no matter what you seem to try. And it might be a bunch of different things. Like I just touched on, it might be this ongoing physical trauma that you experience. It, it, it might be a, a painful spiritual crisis that you just can't seem to get over the hump with. Maybe it's some wounds and damages that you received by no fault of your own um, that keep you just sort of in this endless loop where you feel like you never arrive and any emotional or spiritual rest. Uh, maybe for some of you, you're just caught up in a particular sin that has become so ingrained into your lifestyle that it's made you almost unaware of the peace you actually are lacking, even though people around you are not as oblivious. And so what's interesting is that our solution for this endless loop of unrest uh, is, is not rest, right? Now, now follow me here, because here's what I mean. If you're lacking rest, it would seem like the most logical thing to do would be to pursue rest to achieve rest, right? But when in actuality, what's happening in those times is most of us are pursuing this thing that we call relaxation, which isn't the same thing as rest. It's different. But what we find in our particular culture and all of our particular society is that the way to find just an absence of the chaos and some of the turmoil that continues to stir and spin in us is we go to things to help self-medicate those things. So we think we're getting some rest. In actuality, we're just trying to find some relaxation which is really at the end of the day a temporary band-aid. Now I had to get my wisdom teeth pulled like it was like 10 years ago. And let me tell you what an enjoyable experience that was for me. Um, I got to pay for it even, it was awesome. Um, but I remember the day after the procedure, I, exp I experienced this thing that they call dry socket, um, which to this day, I'm just telling you guys right now, to this day it was the most painful thing I've ever experienced, which includes my wife giving birth to our daughter, right? <laughs> I'm not gonna look at her right now with that comment. The pro here is the problem with it, other than it just being unbelievable pain. The, the problem with it was that this happened on a Saturday morning, meaning the dentist office was closed. So we had to, you know, we had to call like a witch doctor who told us to use some kind of oil that surprise, like worked for like one minute and then stopped working, right? Now it wasn't until Monday when I got back to the dentist that he actually fixed the problem before I, you know, murdered somebody. Um, but here's what I didn't need, man. I did not need temporary pain relief because it was temporary. What did I need? I needed a doctor. I needed somebody to actually locate what the problem was. I had no power to locate the problem. Why? Because I'm not a dentist, right? I don't do my own dental work like most of you. 
I needed a doctor. I really didn't need something that was only going to be temporary. Here's what we know from God's word. It says this over and over and over again. It very specifically says this to us all the way through the Psalms, which is this. God designed you and me in such a way that nothing less than himself will give you the rest you long for. And furthermore, it is God's heart It is his desire to give you the kind of rest that he provided for you through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ, who delivered you from the slavery and oppression of your sin and all the stuff that flows out of your sin that continues to give you unrest, right? So God's heart is to give you rest for your soul. I mean, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you think of rest, but the Bible has something in mind. And more specifically, the Bible always has someone in mind when it's talking about rest. And so the question for us this morning is, how do we enter that rest? How do we war against unbelief? How do we come back from this rebellion that some of us are caught in that is providing us methods and ways of ignoring the truth of God. And yet the warring and the battling just keeps happening and turning and spinning in our soul. What does the Bible have to say about this? Let's go to Psalm 95. I'm going to read. And it says this, excuse me. Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. And in his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his for he made it and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. For he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. All, I turned the wrong page. Brothers, we are not professionals here. Today, it says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So it's an interesting psalm. It's very contrasty, isn't it? You get the beginning of it, which is just this massive call to worship. And then halfway through, the thing just descends into darkness. And it ends with, God making a declaration about the people of Israel back during that time with Moses, where he said that particular generation that refused to believe, that was just perpetually lodged in unbelief, they were not allowed to enter the promised land, the land of rest that God had always intended to bring them in. So we see a few things here and we ask the question about how do we find rest? How do we enter rest? Well, there's a few things here. Uh, we see that we need to make some noise. We see that, I'm using modern vernacular here, we need to make some noise. We need to brag on God a little bit. We need to embrace our sheepiness. We're going to get into all this. And we need to stop looking back. 
And these are some of the points that we're going to get into. And the first one that is really made really clearly for us in verse 1 is that we need to make some noise. The psalmist invites the people to make noise because of the security that has been gained through the salvation of God. Now, none of you are going to argue with this statement, which is this, security is rest. Security is rest. You rest at night because you have locks on your doors you are trusting will prevent anyone from harming you. Now, my friend Michael Crawford from Baltimore, this dude always mentions the fact that every time we leave our house when he stays with us, we never lock the doors, right? I don't know, you know, maybe we're crazy, right? But we just kind of trust our neighbors. We trust the town. We're not afraid. We feel secure. We don't feel like we have anything to lose except our cat. And I don't know how big of a loss that is sometimes. Here's the thing. If anything ever goes missing, we are going to call the police on all of y'alls like pronto, right? Because I just told you I don't lock my door, right? That's just something to keep in mind that I had to throw out there because Melissa didn't like that whole part of the sermon. Um, But here's what we know, and here's what the psalmist is telling us in those first two verses. He's saying salvation is security for those who have put their trust in God. Salvation is security for those of you who have put your trust in Jesus Christ, who is God, who provided you a particular kind of eternal rest on the cross. This doesn't mean you don't grieve. It, it, It means you don't grieve as one who has no hope. It means that you don't walk through the valley of the shadow of death, isolated from the shepherd of your soul who is unfailingly with you. That's what that means. So expressing thanksgiving to God, like we see here in the first two verses, is how you war against the temptation to drown out your pain with all the other noise that surrounds you. And there's a lot of noise surrounding you. And like, I don't even need to tell you that. Like some of that noise, some of you guys got earbuds in right now and you're like dealing with the extra noise. I don't know what you're doing, right? The psalmist here is making the case for a more joyful noise that absorbs the junk noise that is trying to feed you temporary sanity and self-help. Far be it from any of us here at this church to preach self-help to you, right? Because that's never going to be any helpful and you should let me, you should just see about me getting fired if you ever hear those words coming out of my mouth. Go to Jeff immediately and say he's out. There's no self-help. That's not the gospel. That's not what the psalmist is saying here. Raising your voice to the Lord in thanksgiving, this is what he's saying. It's a revolt against believing what your heart is telling you is true, but is what is in fact a lie. This is what you're saying as you come and you sing to the Lord and you make a joyful noise. You're saying, God, you're God. That's what we just sang four songs about. God, you are God. And these words in this singing and this praise giving is the noise to defeat the noise that tries to shut him out constantly. Does that make sense? They make these things now, if you're into recording and into studio gear, called noise-canceling headphones. Um, and what these are, they're these special kind of headphones that you get and you put them on your ears and it literally drowns all outside noise out, Right? And so in a sense, we make a joyful noise to the Lord to try to absorb all the junk noise that we are threatened to listen to and to absorb. There's a different kind of noise here that the psalmist is drawing us to. God wants us to express something to him. He wants us to express our joy for him, not because God is dependent on our joy. 
He's not. Expressing joy for God is a way of canceling out our tendency of expressing joy for the idols that steal our praise. And listen to this, put our rest at risk. That's what's happening. The fact that I struggle with expressing myself this way to God tells me something about who or what is receiving my expression of praise. Because, man, I'm telling you, for those of you who've ever had a conversation with me, if you start talking to me about something I love, man, it's going to be hard to shut me up. I'm all in. I want you to know everything about it. Like Scott just laughed because it's hard for him to get worked under in the week now, right? If I'm on to something, it's like, dude, I wish this guy would just put a zip on it. It's just not going to happen, right? So making noise is one way we enter the rest. We express joy to God for a security that only exists because of God right? So we want to make some noise. We want to express our joy. We want to revolt against those things that put our rest at risk. And we actually want to brag on God instead. So in our joy making and our noise making, we want to brag on God. We want to boast about the things that God has done, about the things God is doing. Have you ever had to write a bio or a resume for yourself? I've always found that to just be like a horrible thing to have to do. Writing down who you are based on the things you've accomplished. I mean, I get like two sentences into this thing and I'm like, oh, like, well, that's discouraging. That's all I have, right? It's, it's, uh, it's depressing unless you're somebody who thinks you're really awesome, right? And then you just keep making up stuff about yourself and you have a two-page resume. But it's kind of like, if you guys have ever experienced, it's kind of like when you pack up your house to move and you come to the sober realization that your whole life fits into one container, and it's not even that large, right? It's kind of sobering. And, and David lays out, in a sense, a bio for God here in verse 3. He says, God is a great king above all gods. He says, the depths of the earth are in his hands. He said, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his and the dry land. I mean, that's, that's an exclusive. And if we were to unpack that, pretty exhaustive bio that none of us have a hand in. None of us gets a piece of that, right? Nobody else gets to be described the way God gets to be described. There is nobody God is not above. There is nothing God does not own. The incomprehensible nature of God's sovereignty, man, it should cause something to happen inside of us when the Spirit of God inside of us connects to that truth and that reality. Because I'm telling you, we have such an easy time bragging on people that we think are greater than us, but we have a heck of a time bragging on God who is greater than all the greatest people that we hold to high esteem, right? Oh, I'd do anything to meet Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga, right? I mean, when's the last time that you just couldn't shut up about God? When's the last time that happened? See, the people of Israel had a tendency to worship things of lesser worth, things of lesser glory than God. So we boast in the Lord, when we tell God how great he is, when we brag on God, it's saying God is greater and more glorious than whatever has become devastatingly important to me. It realigns us with what is actually true rather than what we actually want to be true. And in that sense, it starts providing us a type of rest. It provides us a type of entrance to rest. 
And one of the reasons we struggle to find rest is because of all the things we have designated as being far more deserving of our praise than they ever can be, right? And it's because they ultimately fail in their ability to maintain our inner peace and our security. Because what do you do? What do you do when those things let you down? What do you do when they let you down? When they break, when they disappoint, when they betray, when they hurt you, what do you do then? Where's the security? Where's the hold on, right? I remember sitting in a restaurant, this was recently up in Cleveland, and I was next to a, uh, this is me and Melissa, we were next to a couple of dudes who were watching the Browns play, it was during the football season, and literally this, I don't know why, I, never, I, just, I, I was thinking about this, and it stuck with me. This one dude was so transfixed with the game, right? I mean, he was, he was transfixed literally with every play that the Browns were making, and so I wasn't really watching the game, because you guys know I don't do that, but I was watching the guy watch the game. And that, I mean, that was like the best entertainment I could have found, right? Um, but this is what's so interesting is that his body reacted to every move the Browns, whoever was on the screen. His body literally reacted, had a physical reaction to like literally every pass, every catch, every tackle, every yard gain. See, I know some vernacular, right? Um, he was controlled in a sense by the thing that he praised. Now, I know enough about the Browns to know that he was let down. Am I right about that, right? I mean, the Browns are going to lead this brother to a place of massive unrest because they were not designed to provide him with anything but entertainment, right? And defeat, right? I know enough about the Browns to know that, right? But I thought that was such an interesting thing to see what was controlling him in the moment. I'm not going to take that too far, but I thought it was an interesting analogy. 1 Corinthians 1 reminds us. So Paul said to the church, it's just a snippet, but it says, because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that, so that, so that what? Like, what do we do with that? Like, what do I do with that information? That just get lodged into my head so I know some like longer biblical words? No, he says, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So there's something about, there's something intrinsic to the way that we praise things and the way that we boast about things that we need to be very careful about what we're boasting in because it's something that is heart shaping. And so the psalmist here is reminding us that we need to brag on the Lord. We need to boast in the Lord because it's something that will shape our heart and bend it towards rest, right? So we want to make some noise to drown out the junk noise we want to boast and brag on God. Thirdly, we want to embrace our sheepiness. I don't know if that's a word. I say words all the time on Sunday that aren't words. I think we all accept that now. But we want to embrace our sheepiness. One of the ways we enter rest is by knowing who we are. Do you know who you are? Do you know who you are? The psalmist says, let us worship. Let us bow down in verse 6. Let us kneel before our creator. Notice the posture here. There's no chest thumping. There's no standing up for who you are. There's no just like, do, just do you, right? Notice the category that we're put in here. I mean, you can argue, but he's calling us sheep, right? He doesn't say we are the CEOs of his pasture, right? He doesn't say we're the Kyle Jenners of his hand, right? Some of you guys are like, well, yeah, I don't have a problem with that, right? We are sheep, 
And much of our inner turmoil comes because we don't prefer to admit that we are not God and that we're not really interested in worshiping anyone other than ourselves. It's a sober reality that the psalmist here is reminding us of the thing that we were created to do that will bring us the most joy and rest. So we're not actually not really interested in worshiping anyone other than ourselves. And you know what the problem with that mindset is? It's very sheep-like, right? It's very sheep-like. When you call someone a sheep, listen, you're not paying them a compliment, by the way, right? I don't look at Melissa, Melissa and say, looking good, babe. You look like a sheep tonight, right? Like, wow, you know what I mean? I like that look on you. That's good, right? Sheep are the people equivalent of animals, right? They're not bright. You're just going to insult all of us today, Martin. They make bad decisions. They follow the crowd. Listen, a sheep can't do anything good unless they're led into doing something good. Thankfully, this doesn't apply to anyone but all of us, right? At the end of the day, God has designed us in such a way that when we bow at the knee to him and we see ourselves as helpless in every way, we begin to understand the meaning of rest, which is dependence. And there's a rest when our dependence is being placed on the thing that can provide for it, right? So what we get from verse six and seven is to know who we are, to know that you need the one who has a rod to correct you and a staff to reel you back in when you wander. He's the one to make you lie down in green pastures, isn't he? He's the one where you drink from the still waters he is responsible for leading you to. Do you think that this kind of shepherd can't be trusted for his shepherding abilities? Let me get to the end of verse 7, and it says this. It comes in and brings us into a place of warning. It says, today, if you will hear my voice. Today, if you will hear my voice. So we're reminded once again that you and I might be sheep, but we can still hear the shepherd's voice. I mean, as dumb as a sheep is, they are attentive to their shepherd's voice and they follow him. And so us and all of, our, all of the, the landscape and the environment of the chaos and the noise and the junk that we live in, those of us who have the spirit of God living in us because we've been dream, redeemed by Christ's blood, we hear the shepherd's voice. You're hearing the shepherd's voice right now because we're reading God's word. So that's something that's literally happening to you right now in the moment. And so when we get into verses 8 through 11, what we're seeing is, is this admonition to the people of Israel and really to us is to stop your unbelief, is to stop looking back. Meribah, it says, in Massa, uh, they say these are possibly one in the same place. This is where Israel, back in the day, tested the Lord by complaining that they didn't have any water, even though... God had never let them die of thirst before and had always provided for them. I mean, that is as ludicrous as your kid waking up in the morning and saying, you never feed me breakfast, right? What's wrong with that statement? Why is that statement so offensive when your kid says, you never give me these things. You never give me breakfast as he has like Eggo waffles like dripping down his chin. Why is that so offensive? It's offensive because your kid's memory is so short that it can't go back even one day when you fed them breakfast. 
It's offensive because it's a denial of your love and care that you've proven to them over and over and over again. It's offensive because it lacks reality. It lacks humility and any trust whatsoever in your motivations for them and your ability to provide for them, which, by the way, you've done. God said, I loathed that generation because they went astray in their heart and they didn't know my ways. They put me to the test. They didn't remember. They didn't look back and recount the things that I had done for them to provide. What they did was they looked back to the wrong things. They looked back to the moments where they thought they were experiencing their greatest relaxation and their greatest comfort. And God is saying, I loathe that generation because I was trying to bring them to a place of rest. And they said, no, that's not the rest that we want. And so he swore in his wrath they would not enter his rest. The land he had promised them when he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. So this generation, 40 years wandering in circles around the wilderness, never enters the land. So the warning here for us is don't, don't go back. You guys have a history. You have a story. You have a time of rebellion that exists in your life if you know Jesus now. Where you hit the brakes on God. You put up a barrier. So the warning for us is don't go back to that. Don't go back to that in all the unique ways that even though we have been saved, we tend to go back to that. And then we wonder why our lives are just like, like this, this mess of stuff that we can never get through, we can never get around, we can never find a way over. So the warning for us is don't harden your hearts. It's interesting that we don't have any power to soften our hearts, but yet we have the power to harden them. And our hearts become hard to the Lord when we settle into unbelief, demanding things from God by insinuating that his character is something other than what we've seen and known it to be. Don't go back to those moments. Be guarded against believing something about God that has never been true about God. Because here's what we know. Here's what we know about God amongst many things that we know about God is that there is no one more committed to your rest than God. Nobody. Because when you go back to the beginning of this chapter, what kind of person would call for this kind of worship of themselves that God does? Like what kind of megalomaniac would call for this kind of worship. Listen, when my wife says, how do I look? I usually say, baby, you look like the money. You look great. If she then says, I need you to tell me my hair looks great. And now tell me I look great in these pants. Now tell me you have never set eyes on anything more beautiful in the entire universe. I'm going to be like, dude, this is getting tricky for me. Like, this is feeling like a bunch of trick questions. Like, where is this coming from? I'm going to say, baby, I love you, but that's all going a little bit too far. Like, there's something about that kind of praise and adoration that although I do think, babe, I do think that you are the, no. But there's something unnatural about that to us because we know that as people, we get to a place where it, it comes short, right? It, 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 we, hit a, we, hit a, we hit a wall with that, right? So anybody that would write what 
the psalmist just read at the beginning of 95, you'd be looking at it going like, did a Kardashian write that? Like, I don't, like, I don't know what's going on with this. Like, who would call that kind of praise and adoration and worship upon themselves? Well, a lot of people would. But the problem is, is that when we put it on them, we're not gaining anything in return. So what kind of person would call for that? Well, the author of Scripture who calls for that kind of worship exclusively on himself must have something in mind in regards to what it's going to produce in us if we do it. Right? So a God that calls us to that kind of worship is a God that's also committed to your rest more than anybody else and able to provide it to you and for you, right? God is always saying, look at me. I am who you need to see. This is how you need to respond. This is who you need to give your worship to because it's not that we haven't worshiped since last Sunday. It's that we have. It's just been the wrong stuff. It's just been the wrong stuff. Jonathan Edwards, this old Puritan preacher, he said, that which men love, they desire to have and to be united to and possessed of. That beauty which men delight in, they desire to be adorned with. Those acts which men delight in, they necessarily incline to do. So Johnny here is saying, we have, we have issues. We're drawn to particular kinds of worship. C.S. Lewis says, human history is the long terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy, which will bring him rest. Now, if you were somebody who has trusted in Christ for your salvation, you have literally entered rest. You have entered the rest that God has provided for you in all of the stuff that causes you disunity with that rest. So again, whether it's whether it's something physical or whether it's something emotional, whether it's a spiritual crisis that you are battling, with, whether it's a sin that you won't walk away from, God is going to do that particular work in your heart via the Holy Spirit to get you to that place where you see that the rest that was given you on the cross through Jesus Christ is going to be the only answer for you when it all starts unraveling, when it all starts unstitching at the seams. He's good enough to bring you to that place. Some of you are in that place. And some of you need to listen and you need to look closely and you need to not be like the Israelites who didn't listen to the voice of God, who went astray, who decided that rebellion was the answer to rest other than the promise that God gave them to be their rest. So all through scripture, we have God telling us that Jesus is the answer for the rest that we long for. And again, by rest, what are we talking about? Well, we're not talking about a nice recliner to kick our feet up in after a long day, right? We're not talking about one of those jacuzzi tubs with the built-in jets, even though I love those. We're not talking about a seven-day cruise through the Caribbean with the all-you-can-eat-everything, although I really do like that a lot. The, the kind of rest, that kind of rest hey, you know what, it's important. But at the end of the day, it's actually relaxation. And it's good and it's necessary, but if all you do is run from relaxation to relaxation to try and hit the brakes on the real stuff, listen, 
that will not exit your mind when you try to sleep at night. It's literally the equivalent of putting a Band-Aid on a migraine headache. That's what it is. It's nothing more than a temporary form of self-medication for those storms of fear and worry and approval and control and anxiety that just hover over you and leak in and out of you. So here's our call. Here's our invitation this morning. It's to surrender ourselves. It's to surrender control. By the way, Sunday morning is always the invitation to surrender. To surrender control, to humble yourself, to confess your burden of unbelief, to repent of the rebellion that still exists in your life, to turn from idols. Also, to confront some of your wounds, to assess some of the damage that has happened to you, maybe from people that sought to do you harm. Don't put your rest at risk by simply pursuing relaxation as temporary medication. The call is to receive the rest of Jesus Christ and enter into it through the worship of God, your deliverer, your savior, the one of whom there is nobody more committed to your rest than. We read this verse as we sang, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden. You a laborer? Do you feel weighed down by the labor? By the labor of pursuing things just to give you some temporary form of peace? He said, come to me and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, Jesus says. I'm gentle. I'm lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls because my yoke, that thing I'm asking you to take upon yourself, he says it's easy. And the burden that I put on you is light. So we need to ask, whose rest will we enter today? Will we go back to Psalm 95? Will we read these gracious words that the psalmist gives us and how to enter rest? And will we take the warning that he gives us by reminding us of what happened to a people who decided to pursue everything but God to find something that God could only provide and he wants to provide for us because he is our rest. Amen? Let's pray. God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we find rest. We find that very thing that all of us are longing for, that we're seeking, that we're searching for. We thank you that as your people, you show us here how to find this rest, how to re-enter this rest. And it's through the worship of you. So God, let us make those joyful noises to you to silence the, all, the, all the noise and the junk that surrounds us. Lord, I pray that we would learn to boast on you, that we would brag on you, that Lord, that we would praise you for the things that you've done to work out in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we don't have the power in and of ourselves to accomplish these things. Um, we're very sheep-like. We're very dependent. 
And like sheep, we don't know how dependent we actually are. So God, I pray right now, Lord, that you would wake us up, those who need to be woken up, that you would comfort those who need to be comforted, Lord, that you would soothe those right now who just need to feel the presence of your hand upon them. Lord, I pray that you would convict those that are running in rebellion and disobedience and call them back to you. Lord, I pray that we would all be able to enter your rest and give you praise and glory for it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.